Bibles this morning, let's turn over to the book of Galatians. And uh, we have been working our way through the New Testament as we have been really working our way through the whole Bible and uh, trying to lay out and give you a good understanding and perspective of each book of the Bible so you can kind of correlate it into all else we're doing here. We are on a probably like a year and a half study and everything that we're doing to try to get everybody up to speed as best we can. And I know that there's no way, you know, that you're going to be able to do it. And I also know that, you know, you can teach the Bible till you're blue in the face. I can teach you the Word of God 24 hours and seven days a week. And uh, it would be an illusion for me to think that everybody is going to do what they need to do with it. And I learned a long time ago, as far as the ministry is concerned, you know, all you can do is do what you can do. You preach the Word of God, and those that will, will get it will get it. And those that won't get it won't get it. And uh, it's a process by which you just have to, uh, you know, you just have to keep being faithful to preaching the Word of God. So that's what we're looking at today. And uh, we're going to start to the book of Galatians. Well, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get going today. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Pray, Father, that you'll help us focus now, Lord, on your word. We pray, Father, that as we come here today that we'll, we'll really look forward to, Lord, just opening up the scriptures and have what you have for us. We trust you, Lord. We know that this book is your book. Ask you to now to put all the things out of our mind. Uh, pray you'll quiet our hearts and all the things that we busy schedules of the week that will just open up our hearts and minds now to this book and that Lord that you'll be able to speak to us that when we leave here today we'll be a little smarter a little stronger a little closer to you father in our walk and that's what we want so help us today father and all that we've got to say and all that I've got to try to accomplish to give me clarity of thought help me to keep focused help me Lord to uh, really convey to these your people what you have in my heart that you've given me to give to them and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the book of Galatians, as far as I'm concerned, that, that, it's another great book. And once you get into the Paul's writings, as I said earlier, once you start to get into the writings of Paul, <clears throat> you start to get tremendous amount of material written uh, to you and I as Christians. And I've said this before, and I want to say it again, because I you know, want to keep emphasizing it, that when you get into the Word of God, obviously, and we've said this many, many times, not all the Bible is written directly to you. All of the Bible is written for you. But you're going to find that there are some things in the Bible that God wrote to either the nation of Israel or to Gentiles in general that really you can't apply to your own personal walk with God. But the, much of the Bible is written directly to you that you and I can, can take right what it says and put it into our life. Nowhere is that more truer than in the books that Paul writes. And I've said this same thing about five different ways to try we'll all get the concept of it. But the book of Galatians is another great book to learn some things. Because here's what's happened. Another issue has arisen in the church. Another problem. And the date of the book of Galatians is somewhere around 57 A.D. That would put it Acts 19.20, somewhere in there. And Paul writes this book based on a doctrinal issue which has arisen. Now, you remember the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth was a church where <coughs> they were totally off the wall when it came to biblical truth. 
They were a church full of babies that were having all kinds of personal problems. This is not the same situation that we have in the church here in the book of Galatians. <clears throat> this church is a good church. This church is trying to do what's right, but here's what happened. As many times, a false teaching has crept into this church. Somebody has let down their guard, and now we're being faced with another issue that a church has to deal with. Now, that's all great stuff for us, because in studying this, we learn all of the things that we need to learn about it for our own personal lives. Something I want you to make note of, and I know we talk about the corruption of the Word of God today. We talk about how that the really the issue today is the authority of the Word of God, and do we have the Word of God uh, the way that God wants us to have it, and can we trust it? I've talked to you many, many times about the two lines of Bibles and the corruption in those lines. But if you would turn back, and you don't have to do it right now, but jot this down and go back and look at it later. If you jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, you'll find that Paul makes reference to that even at this time, Christ has only been gone, dead, back to, and resurrected, and back to heaven now for 20-some, 20 25 years. Paul is in the middle of the ministry and he's dealing with all these churches. And even then, Paul telling us that during this time, an underlying theme is happening of corrupting the Word of God. There's men even at this time. The devil didn't miss, a, didn't miss a trick. And of course, I told you that the study of history is nothing more than studying God moving in a direction to accomplish His plan and the devil moving in direction to counter that. And that's what we're looking at right here in the book of Galatians. We're finding that again, that somebody has already started to corrupt the Word of God and we see it coming into the church. And uh, if you remember when we studied the book of Acts, we had a similar group problem here back in Acts chapter 15. Back there, we had a group from Judea and they're called the Judaizers. And what they had done in Acts chapter 15 is they were going into the church and they were saying, sure, Right, yeah, you get saved by trusting Christ as your own personal Savior, but then they were saying, but you have to keep the law too as part of it. In other words, some of the people are during this time are taking and accepting the Old Testament teachings, but they're trying to tie it back to the Old Testament also and saying, no, you've got to keep both. And of course, the New Testament teaching is that once Christ died on the cross, and the Bible talks about this in Colossians chapter 2, that he nailed the ordinances of the handwriting to his cross. What does that mean? It means that when Christ died on the cross, the Old Testament law was done away with. And there's no more law that you and I are under. But here we begin to see the heresy creeping in that, uh, that we are still under the law while we're still under grace. And we begin to see that the church in Galatia here has this problem. And that's what's taking place. Somebody has come in and said, okay, yeah, you can be saved by trusting Christ as your own personal Savior, but what you got to do is you got to keep the Old Testament law to stay saved. And it's confusing them. And this heresy has come into the church, and Paul writes this letter to deal with it. Now, in doing so, saying all of that, in doing so, Paul gives us tremendous insight into the aspects that you and I have to deal with. Because you know what? The cults are around today, even as it was back in this early time. The devil hasn't missed a beat. 
He never takes a vacation. He never takes a day off. 24-7, he's trying to do everything he can do to confuse you, to stop the work of God, and of course, shut down Christianity uh, as best as he can. So as Paul writes this out, we see some tremendous insight. One of the great things we see here in understanding it when you study it out and run it back to Acts 15, you begin to see how a cult works. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you're here this morning and you believe the King James Bible is the absolute infallible Word of God, you're classified in the world of Christianity today as a member of a cult. Because today we've come to the point where anybody who believes the Bible is the absolute Word of God has to be a cult because Christianity just doesn't believe that. Now, if we were having this conversation 120 years ago, it wouldn't be an issue because everybody believed the King James Bible was the Word of God and anybody who didn't was a member of a cult. But see how times change? And times change, but the Bible never changes. And that's why when you learn the principles of the Word of God, then that's where you're at. But we find that cults, cults, they come in two brands. They'll have cults that are unsaved people who get into cult relationships within a church that are totally unsaved. That would be like Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, and all of that crowd. Then you have cults that are within the body of Christ. In other words, saved people get messed up on the Bible, and they come to the point where they become cult-like in the way they approach things. But let me tell you what you find out in this great book. Let me tell you the difference between and how to tell between something that is a cult than something that's real. A Bible believer, a born-again, Bible-based man or woman who believes the Bible is the final authority and operates on the Bible, here's how they work. They will read the Bible. They will study the Bible. They will let the Bible interpret itself. They will use the Bible as its own dictionary, as its own commentary, and they will take from that, comparing the Scriptures, and they will get Bible truth. That Bible truth that they get from the Bible then forms the format by which they build their church and build their individual lives. That's the Bible way. Here's what a cult does. A cult will come up with what they want to believe first. They'll get their preconceived ideas of what they want to believe first without ever getting into the Bible. Once they get their mindset that this is what I want to believe or this is what the teaching is, then they go to the Bible to find verses that support it. And let's face it, you can make the Bible say anything you want to make it say. If somebody wants to push the case for, you know, that it's okay to take drugs, you know, you could take the fact that, uh, uh, that the Bible says that Jesus got high on a mountain. So you could take that and prove your point, you see, sure. If somebody wanted to believe that drinking was okay, you could go back to the book of Psalms and say, The Lord is my shepherd, he shall not want, he making me to lie down by the still. And you could stop there, you see. Or if you wanted to fabricate a lot and lie and wanted to use the Bible for it, well, you could say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he maketh me to lie. See? So you can go anywhere you want to go with it. Now, you're laughing at that, and that's kind of stupid, I know that. But the bottom line is, all this stuff about the Da Vinci Code and all this stuff about all the stuff of Christ being married, that's exactly how they do it. They take exactly what they want. Who cares about the Bible? Oh, and by the way, coming up on Thursday night, we're gonna, when we get into the body of Christ and we get into the church, studying the church, uh, we're going to tackle the Da Vinci Code, and I'm going to show you that the Da Vinci Code is right. <coughs> Christ was married. We'll talk about that on a Thursday night coming up. They're half right. We just can't get it all in perspective. But anyway, we'll get into it when we get there. But I'm saying that's how you do it if you're a cult. 
You believe what you want to believe first, and then you take it from the aspect that where you go with it, you find a few Bible verses to pull it off as the real thing. And that's exactly how cults operate versus somebody that bases in the Bible. Now, the book of Galatians and the book of Romans go hand in hand. And they're really good books to study together. Because here's what Romans teaches, and we've already know this because we study the book of Romans. Romans teaches that a man is saved by grace through faith plus nothing. Romans teaches that a man or a woman is saved by grace through the faith of God and what He did on Calvary's cross without any works whatsoever. The book of Galatians goes hand in hand with that because the book of Galatians teaches that a man or woman is saved, that is already saved, is kept by faith through grace plus nothing. And those books go hand in hand. One shows you that you're saved by grace through faith. The other one shows you that after you're saved, God keeps your faith, keeps your salvation through faith and grace uh, plus nothing. And that's why the book of Galatians is such a great book. Because when Paul begins to deal with this issue, that's exactly how he comes at this issue, and that's exactly how he deals with it. Now, let me give you a breakdown of the book of Galatians. Real easy. There's six chapters in Galatians, and this is the outline that we're going to follow today as I break it down for you, this little book chapter by chapter, and uh, it leads to some great principles. And uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul begins to lay out the authority of the gospel. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul begins to deal with and lay out the superiority of the gospel. And in chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul begins to talk about the liberty in the gospel. And that's simply how the outline goes, keeping in mind that he's dealing with a church, writing a letter to the church that has been introduced to a false teaching. So his attack on that false teaching is to come back, and he writes this little book, two chapters dealing with the authority of the gospel, then two chapters on dealing with how the gospel is superior and then two chapters dealing, showing you and I how that once we're saved, we have liberty in that gospel. And wow, there's some great material in this book that we're going to try to flesh out of here as we go through. Now let's look at chapter 1. And in chapter 1, as I've already stated, Paul begins to deal with the, this heresy that's crept into this church by laying down and establishing the authority of the gospel. And the first thing I want you to see is in verse 8 of chapter 1 where he says this, but though we, or an angel from heaven, preach another gospel unto you, that which we have uh, that, uh, to, you that, that to you then that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. The first thing he says is, if somebody else, or even we, come to preach another gospel to you, which you haven't heard of us, you let that person be accursed. And I hope when he said it originally, he said it better than I just did. But anyway, now here's what's happened. We know that in 1 Corinthians, now watch how all this stuff starts to come together. We studied 1 Corinthians a couple of weeks ago, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel was defined for us. We know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that is a definitive passage. In fact, I brought you through Thursday night, and I showed you uh, the six gospels in the Bible, and how that these six gospels lay out through the Bible in a dispensational sense, and uh, what he's talking about here, he's talking about the fact that during the church age, during this period of time, if somebody comes and preaches another gospel that isn't laid out and preached in the Bible, you're going to let that person be, or put that person to be accursed, don't have anything to do with it. 
So we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 very clearly that the gospel is defined for us and we know what it is. And yet the mark of any heresy, now here you want to learn this, the mark of any false teaching will always be leaving the Word of God and come up in, come, coming up with something else that is authoritative other than the Word of God. In this case, they've got another gospel. You're going to find every false religion on the face of this planet will take the Bible and use the Bible, but when they want to prove their cultish ways, they will have either another book, another set of writings, another teaching, or in this case, another gospel that isn't found in the Bible that they will hold as just as authoritative as the Bible, even though it is not. Cults cannot ever survive on just the Bible. They never have been able to, and they never will be able to, because the Bible is true. The Jehovah Witnesses, for years and years and years, used the King James Bible. Suddenly, around 1940, they saw a great problem that they had. Though the Jehovah Witnesses, who do not believe that Jesus Christ was God, who liked to go door to door, were knocking on doors, and they were getting their tails waxed up one side and down the other by Bible-believing people, Baptists, whatever, who were simply taking their King James Bible and beating them to pieces because the King James Bible teaches Jesus Christ was God. And they were just slicing them like diced meat. Well, what did they do? They got to get a little huddle down there in New York in Manhattan where the big old thing called Watchtower is, and they come up with a new translation. That new translation is called the New World Translation. And in that New World Translation, they took all the references out of the Bible of Christ's deity. Why? Because they wanted to prove what they believed. And of course, when they were faced with the Bible that proved what they didn't want to believe, they had to come up with another book. And of course, that's exactly what he's saying here. And uh, that's exactly what's taking place. Another gospel has been introduced to this church. Now, to put that in a New Testament thing that we can all understand, I don't know any other way and any other organization that illustrates this great truth than the one I'm about to use. Across this country today, you see them on television, you see churches on almost every street corner. And these churches, all of them, all fall under the umbrella of what we commonly call as, as the charismatic movement. Now, I'm not fighting anybody. I'm really not. I know people sometimes think that I'm a very closed-minded individual. That's because you don't know me very well. If you would spend a little time getting to know me, buy me lunch eight or nine times, you know, buy me dinner, spend some time with me, you would find out that I am one of the most open-minded people you have ever met in your life. The problem with me is I don't buy anything at first sight. If there's one verse of the Bible, and I know I screwed up a Bible a lot, like we all do, but if there's one verse in the Bible I got down, it is the verse that says, prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. I know what that verse means. And I know as a child of God, that's my job from the Word of God to prove all things. So I'm not against anybody. Let me tell you something. If I thought being a charismatic would be the way to go, that's what I would believe. I don't have anything that I just have to believe today. I'll believe whatever truth is. If you prove to me that being a Jehovah Witness is the way to go, I'll be knocking doors with you all next week. If you prove to me the Church of Christ is the way to go, I'll be walking around you taking the word baptize and making it baptize, and I'll be bup, 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 baptizing everybody. I have no problem with it at all. If you prove to me that being a Mormon is the way to go, I'll be with you all the way down the line. 
If you show me that being a seven-day disadvantages is the way to go, I'm with you. I don't have any prejudice about anything about except that book. That's all. Hey, I'll sit down with anybody, anytime, anywhere. You can call me a heretic for believing my book anytime you want. You know what? You'll never do it sitting down across from a table from me because after about 15, 20 minutes, we'll find out who the heretic is. See? I mean, I told you before. A child of God needs to be somebody that not only believes what he believes, but understands why he believes it. And that's why you don't have to be, and I'm not against anybody. I'm really not. So don't take my remarks that I'm about to say as being cruel. And I know in the society we live in, you know, if you, you, you know, if you look crosswords at something, you know, then it's, you know, you got a hate problem or an anger problem. And I know I have an anger problem, but I don't have a hate problem, okay? But the charismatic movement. Now, let me just talk to you about this. It's across this world. And if you would ask the average charismatic where they started, where they began, they wouldn't even know. I have never met a charismatic in my life that ever really knew their Bible. I've never met a charismatic anywhere in the world who knew church history. I've never really met a charismatic who ever thought beyond his own emotions. I've watched great healers like Jimmy Swaggart, Oral Roberts, I watched them sit down there and I watched them preach and preach and preach and talk about how that God can heal and how God can do this and how God can do that and you don't have enough faith if God, you can't heal you. And I've had them talk, 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 talk and in the middle of their sermon, right before they get done, I've watched them both pick up their glasses and put them on. Well, wait a minute. Why don't you have perfect eyesight? I don't understand that. I really don't. We played softball a number of years ago with a charismatic church group, and they were a nice guy. I still like the guy. But he was always on me because we didn't believe in the sign gifts. And he'd make fun of us. And it was good, light fun. Well, we were playing softball one time, and we were our team against their team, and, 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 and they were, we were batting, and they were fielding, you know, and all that stuff, and somebody threw a ball in and popped the ball, and, and somebody swung the bat back and hit the catcher right in the nose. Well, blood squirted everywhere. You know, and he's, oh, no, he broke my nose, you know, and, and I'm worried because now, you know, they think we just hit him because they're charismatic, and that wasn't the truth. And the guy came running into the field, you know, and he said, what's the matter, what's the matter? This guy was spurting blood everywhere, nose was bent sideways, you know. It was a mess. And he says, anybody got a cell phone? Anybody got a cell phone? You need to call an ambulance here. This guy, and I said, Why? I don't understand. It's just ring around the rosy here and fix his little nosy. I don't know what's the problem. I don't understand. You have yelled at me, made fun of me because we don't believe in what you believe in. Now, here is your chance. Here is your best friend with a busted nose bleeding all over everything, and you want an ambulance? Fix it. I don't understand things like that. I don't know why they don't question things like that. I, don't, I question it even farther. You see, the charismatic movement started in 1900 out in Los Angeles. Now, before 1900, there wasn't anybody on the face of planet Earth that believed what the charismatics believed. I'll give you 500 of the greatest men, preaching men, down through the last 200 years from 1900 back that tore this world up for Jesus Christ, and not a one of them spoke in tongues. Not a one of them healed. 
I'll show you a hundred great missionaries that went into the interior of Africa, South America, India, China, and everywhere else, and they were medical doctors because they were not only preaching the Word of God, but they were fixing the problems that people were having physically without any healing. You can't give me one charismatic. You know why? Because they didn't start in 1900, and when they started, it was started with a woman, Amy, Fierson, Amy Simpson McPherson, out the Exula Street Mission, and from Amy baby came in just two short years later something called the full gospel. Now the full gospel simply means that they've got all of the gospel and us poor deluded Baptists don't have any of the gospel. Oh, we don't have the full gospel. And my question to Amy is where is the full gospel in the Bible? It isn't in the Bible. It was made up. And the Bible says clearly that if anybody comes preaching another gospel, he's accursed. And when you come to me with a full gospel, when I don't find the full gospel in my Bible, and I find the Bible gospel defined in my Bible, I don't have to pray about what I'm going to do with it. Because it's another gospel. Now the full gospel went into an organization called the Full Gospel Businessmen's Association. Then it got perverted from there to what is sometimes called the Four Square Gospel. And then it went from there that you see this in the country's Christian music field, they call it now Southern Gospel. Like, is there another gospel for the South than there is for the North? What is four square gospel? What is the full gospel? How much fuller can you get than what the Bible says you're already complete in Him the day you get saved in the book of Colossians? In other words, the bottom line is, Paul defines for us the gospel and shows us that just as another gospel came into this church in the book of Galatians, there's other gospels out there today. And the thing that keeps you from getting entrapped in those, believing in those, is just simply following what the scriptures say. And it's as simple as that. Now the next aspect that you find down through here, Paul shows how absolutely he is the God's man when it comes to the gospel. And he says in verse 12, and we get a lot of great insight into this. He says in verse 12, For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, no man taught it to him, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now remember, last week we looked at 2 Corinthians. And I showed you in 2 Corinthians about the humility of the minister, how that Paul was taken up to the third heaven, and he was showed great revelations and the abundance of revelations and what God showed him. That's what he's talking about here. What he's saying is this. Paul got the gospel of the grace of God for the church. He didn't get it from a man. Nobody taught it to him. He got it directly from God. Paul is saved in Acts chapter 9. Somewhere along the course of his life after he's saved, he's on the road to Damascus someplace, or he's somewhere, and he's doing something, and suddenly he gets taken up to the third heaven, and God shows him and explains to him what he wants him to do. Then we find in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, another piece of the puzzle. Because he says in verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that were the apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. Ah, you know what he's saying? He says, when I got saved, sometime after, whenever God, he didn't tell us the time period, whenever God thought it was appropriate, whenever God, when it pleased God, he said, 
I didn't go down to Jerusalem and look out the apostles. I didn't go find Peter, James, and John and find out what was going on. He said, no, I went into Arabia. Now, why Arabia? Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. He is in Arabia for three years. What's in Arabia? Mount Sinai. It was Mount Sinai where God met with Moses. It was Mount Sinai where God met with Elijah. It was God, Mount Sinai where God did everything He did in the Old Testament. And when God saved His man, the apostle to the Gentiles, and wanted to reveal the body mystery because this man was going to carry it to the ends of the earth, even affecting us today, because our church and a long history going back through the Bible-believing churches goes right back to Antioch, which goes right back to Paul, when he wanted to do that, he took Paul into Arabia, put him on Mount Sinai, and gave him three years of educational training based on what he already knew in the Old Testament of where the body mystery was going and what Paul. And when Paul hit the ground running, where, then where's the first place he goes? He goes down into Jerusalem. Who does he look for? Who does he look for? It says, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. Why does he go to Peter? Because in the process of his Bible education up there at Mount Sinai, he found out that Peter had the keys to the kingdom for the nation of Israel. So he wanted to meet with him. Then he wanted to find James. Why James? Because James, the Lord's brother. You know what he wanted? He just sat down and James and said, look, you were his literal brother. You grew up with him. Tell me everything you know about him. Tell me everything you experienced with him. Tell me everything he did in a human sense. He wanted to find everything out that he could after he got everything he could good from God. Great principle. I'm all for reading other books. I'm all for studying other guys' material. Only after I get everything I need to get from God. See how it works? That's a pattern. That's a pattern. So we see his three years in Arabia is where God introduced it. And this impacts his life so much and I gave you this Thursday night when we came through the Gospels, that we find in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, that Paul calls the Gospel that he's preaching, my Gospel. And I've actually heard preachers say that Paul shouldn't speak that way, that he was speaking arrogantly when he said that. And of course, they don't know enough about the Bible to put a left eye of a blind bat. They can't figure the thing out that their reference to my Gospel was based on this passage right here, that he didn't get his Gospel from any man. Nobody taught it to him. He got it directly from God, and anybody that got the Gospel had to get it from Paul. So any other Gospel was the wrong Gospel. The Gospel you got to get has to come from that book with Paul. Any other gospel? The wrong gospel. Full gospel? Out the window. Gone. It's as simple as that. Then we come to chapter 2. In chapter 2, he continues to lay out his authority as it pertains to the gospel and showing that the gospel that he's got is the only authoritative gospel. In this chapter, he deals again with the events that we talked about earlier in Acts chapter 15. Uh, and uh, this time he talks about, he takes Paul, Barnabas, and Titus in verse 1. They go to Jerusalem. They meet with Peter and the apostles. And what comes out of that meeting is very, 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 very instructive. Because when they go down in chapter 2 and have that meeting, because of the heresy that has arisen, they confer Peter and Paul for the first time, and they lay out and understand where each other's ministries lie. 
Paul recognizes in verse 7 and 8 that Peter is the apostle to the Jews. He figures something out that 99% of the Bible scholars can't get. Peter was given the keys of the kingdom in Matthew, therefore he is the apostle of the Jews. They recognize also that Paul is the apostle of the Gentiles. And when they leave there, they understand that Paul's got his job to do approved of God, Peter's got his to do approved of God, and off they go. And it's as simple as that. And in the process, they realize and understand that a man is now saved by grace through faith, and the law has nothing to do with it. But I can't leave this chapter without giving you a, a salient verse. Remember I started cataloging salient verses for you, verses that are absolutely crucial to your spiritual survival? Well, most of you already know this one, but I'll give it to you anyhow. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. What a great verse. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That verse is a great verse that we always use in our lives to talk about the fact that we are crucified with Christ. Great verse. Applied directly to you and me. Now look at the verse in the context. The context of that verse is in the issue coming up over law versus grace. And that verse clearly shows you that once you got saved, you're no longer under the law. And that's how the verse was really meant, even though we use it in a great personal way, which is absolutely true, because if you're saved here this morning, you are crucified with Christ. You're dead, but you live. And that's the whole liberty concept of the gospel, which we'll get into just a little bit. All right, now chapter 3. In chapter 3, he changes themes. And he changes things from the authority of the gospel to the superiority of the gospel. Now he's taken two chapters and he's laid out how that the gospel is authoritative through him. Now he's going to talk about how that the gospel is superior. And he starts out in chapter 3 verse 1 and he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Then he says in verse 3, and this verse sums it up, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? You see the issue? He's saying, are you guys so stupid that you can't see that you got saved and started out by believing Christ as your own personal Savior, now you're allowing somebody else to come back in and put you under the law? It'd be a lot like, you know, you guys that have just got saved in the last year. It'd be a lot like you coming down and getting going about there and somebody winning you to Christ, and then... You know, you come to, back to church and we say, well, glad you're saved. Praise the Lord. You know, I'm saved. Yeah, I know. Boy, isn't God great. His death on the cross is great. But, you know, you've got to keep the Old Testament law now to stay saved. How stupid is that? And that's what he's saying. He says, hey, man, you started out in faith. Are you now going to be made perfect by the flesh? And, of course, that's what the Galatians have been fooled by. They've gotten saved by grace through faith. And now another gospel has come in that has entered into their world and says, now you have to do something to keep it. Oh, yeah, you're saved by faith and grace, but you've got to keep the Old Testament law to stay saved. And, of course, in this great chapter, he explains that. He talks about how that as a, as a New Testament Christian, the law is no more effect on me. In fact, he says in verse 24 that the law was likened to a schoolmaster that brought me to Christ because it was the law, Romans chapter 3, that showed me I needed a Savior. And he says, the law is our schoolmaster that brought us to Christ. And then he goes in verse 6, and he talks about Abraham. He goes back to Abraham, and he shows how Abraham, in the Old Testament, was saved by grace through faith. And how that Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. 
and he begins to lay the groundwork for the superiority of the gospel. How that the gospel is superior because it's based on faith plus grace plus nothing. There is absolutely nothing you and I could do. You and I got grace from God when we didn't deserve it, just like Abraham got it when he didn't deserve it. But, oh, i got to give you verse 8. Verse 8 is another one of those salient verses. Man, verse 8 is one of those verses that the mind of the Holy Spirit of God put in this book that breaks the neck on every Bible college professor and every, every person in the world that thinks they're smarter than God's Word. Every man that hates that King James Bible, every man that marks you and I as a cult member because we believe in one infallible book, breaks his neck right here. And there ain't any way around it unless you just change it. Look at verse 8. Now keep in mind, he's talking about Abraham. And in verse 8, he makes a great thing. Look what he says. And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, and thee shall all nations be blessed. Just looked like a harmless verse. It says, And the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Somebody says, Well, what's the big deal, Bob? Well, the big deal was that couldn't happen. You know why it couldn't happen? Because Abraham didn't have any Scriptures. Abraham didn't have any Scriptures. Moses wrote the first four books of the five books of the Bible. He writes them a long time after Abraham. When this verse takes place, as it says it takes place, it could not have happened. Why? He had no scriptures. The scriptures couldn't preach to him. In fact, when you go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when it quotes the same verse at the right context in the story, it doesn't say, and the scriptures foreseeing. It says, and God foreseeing. You know what Paul did? Paul was a cultist. Paul was a bibliologer. He worshipped the Bible. You know what Paul thought? He thought the word Scripture and the word God were interchangeable because they were the same. That's what I believe. Paul had no problem changing the word Scripture for God and God for Scripture. You know why? Because he knew a great truth that 99% of God's people don't know today. The Word of God and God are the same. And just as God doesn't change, the Word of God doesn't change. So he's perfectly right saying the Scripture's foreseeing. Scripture's foreseeing for something to foresee is the attribute of something that's alive. How can a book? I'll tell you something else. He didn't have the Scriptures, but he had God. And God is the Scriptures, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you find some great truths here that the average Bible scholar is going to miss. The average Christian is going to miss it because they don't believe the Bible anymore either. And that great truth is Scripture and God are used interchangeably. 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 I mean, there are some pitfalls in the Bible that God put in there to slow up somebody that had a prejudice against his book that will just, I mean, if you don't, if you read this book and you spend any time with it at all, it doesn't take long to see there's a mind behind this King James Bible that is not too apparent to a Greek and Hebrew scholar. I'll show you another one. Look at verse 26, 27, and 28. Watch this. Watch this. Now I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 26. Now watch. Stay with me here. For we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. 
For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Absolutely, 100% doctrinally right on the money. Now, remember when we came through Romans? I showed you in Romans chapter 1 about Gentiles. You know what we've got in America today? We've got in America today a nation that was founded on the Word of God, a nation at once believed God and the principles of God, a nation at once that infused God into everything from its educational system to its government to its state constitutions to its Declaration of Independence to every facet, a nation that believed on the concepts of God. I mean, I can't tell you. I can't tell you how this country was built on that. Well, we've come to the place where we've changed now. And the way that we have changed is exactly the way I told you that Romans chapter 1 laid out how Gentiles change. Because I showed you in chapter 1 of the book of Romans that when God reveals Himself to Gentiles, the first thing, next thing that Gentiles do is they reject God. Then they rise up in their own wisdom and their own uh, arrogancy, and then they replace God. And then in the process of replacing God, they wind up reviling God and hating God. And at that point, God gives them a reprobate mind. We studied it. That's what you're seeing in America. America is a nation that God, God came to, and I told you Thursday night, only two nations in the history of the world that are started at their beginning and their inception with God and the Word of God. One of them is the nation of Israel, the other is the United States of America. Only two nations on the face of this planet. And I showed you that what has happened is America has, re God revealed Himself to America. In time, God rejected America, God when He rejected His Word. They replaced God, and now America hates God. America wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. We will tolerate to some degree the vague concept of God. When you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, that great God is now called your significant person that you pray to. We take God, but we make some kind of supreme being that is in a general sense that no matter whether it's a telephone pole or God or the Bible or whatever, it all fits in. We, I had a friend of mine one time that was all excited because he was a buddy with a state congressman, uh, or, or uh, not a state congressman, but a, a, a Washington senator. And uh, they, uh, when Congress convenes, they always open in prayer. And if you got the right kind of political buddies, they will get you in to open the prayer of the Congress or the Senate because they always open their hearings with prayer. And so it's a little political thing, you know, and you give enough bucks to somebody or you let him come before your church and say enough things to get him reelected. You know, he'll do you a favor and he'll call you up and say, Hey, Pastor, you know what? We'd like to fly you out to Washington next week because, you know what, we're opening up the Congress and we'd like to have you open up in prayer. Well, that's a big protection prestigious thing. I mean, man, you could talk about that, the fellowship, for a long time. And so my buddy, he was all excited about it, you know, and he was all excited, and he had about a week to go, and uh, Secret Service comes in, you know, and checks you out and all that stuff, make sure you're not going to carry a bomb in. Little do they know, the bomb that you're carrying in is a blackback 66 that will blow the top off the world one of these days, but don't tell them, let them figure it out on their own. 
So my buddy comes down there and he gets this thing in the mail and it says, uh, we're so happy that you're going, to, uh, you're going to pray and open up the 101st Congress or whatever it is. Da, 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 da. And we're so thankful that you're going to come and help unite us. We have a few things you have to follow. First of all, in your prayer, you cannot name the name of Jesus Christ. You can talk about God, but you can't talk about Jesus Christ. You cannot close your prayer in Jesus' name. You cannot make any reference to Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, anybody named to the Son of God. Talk about God. Thank God. God bless you. God bless America. God did. You ever notice how even the president does that? You notice how he said God bless and God bless and everybody. Ugh. You know what? He will never say Jesus Christ. You know why the million was? He's lost about 100 million votes. Ain't going to happen. You know why? Because this country somewhat will tolerate God. They will not tolerate Christ. And what this country has done is taken Christ. See, you can make God anybody. You can't make Jesus Christ anybody. That's why he's always been a stickler. The world system hates Christ. The devil hates Christ. The unsaved world hates Christ. And now God's people are hating Christ. Oh, yeah. Let me show you what you got here. Great verse. For all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says. Let me show you what the world comes up with when you take Jesus Christ out of everything. Now, I'm going to read the same verse, except I'm going to delete all the references to Christ. Here's what you got. Verse 26, for you're all the children of God. Just take out by faith in Christ Jesus. Now we're all the children of God. That's exactly what the world teaches. I heard Emmanuel Cleaver a while back, you know, and down there, there was a big issue over the gays, and he was down there in Gay Pride Week, and he got up there and he says, uh, he, he was courting the votes, and he said, you know what? He says, he says, I believe we're all God's creation. I believe we're all God's children. I don't believe God made no junk. In other words, if you're a homosexual or you're a lesbian, you're okay, because we're all the children of God. See? He couldn't make that statement if he put in, in Christ Jesus. Leave out Christ, make it whatever you want. And that's what they do. For you're all the children of God. Ah, verse 27. For as many as you have been baptized. See that thing? Nobody's going to get upset about being baptized in water. As long as you leave Christ out of it. Why you everybody in the world bup, 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 go around baptizing people? Man, ain't nothing wrong. That's a nice religious symbol. As long as you leave Christ out of it. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond or free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one. Leave out in Christ Jesus. You got the we are one. Let's hold around singing kumbaya. We are the world. Because that's exactly what the world thinks. We're all one. There ain't no difference. You see that thing? There's neither free nor bond. There's neither male nor female. Same sex marriages. Step right up to the plate. Because we're all one. You take Christ out of it. And you got what the world system has, a system without Christ that makes everybody one, be baptized, we're all the children of God, and that's where it comes. That's where it comes. And it's one of the most incredible things. And if you didn't know there was, I mean, all the races are the same, all the religions are the same, we're all one, we're all the world, you know, everybody's going to get along, we're all the children of God, why can't we get along, why can't we do this, it's peace, 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 peace. I, the greatest example is today, and we all can identify with, is Reverend Jesse Jackson, my hero of the faith. He goes wherever there's trouble. 
And when he goes, he brings God with him. And right now, the trouble is out in Santa Mesa, California. With Michael Jackson. He's down there saying, and I, it, it, people, are, uh, people in the world today are, are, are the dumbest people in the world. There are no dumber people on planet Earth. We got $50 million a month being pumped into a scientific organization down in southern Texas. And if you drive down there, there are arrays of radio telescopes that are lined up, connected together, and there's 20 here, 20 here, 20 here, $50 million a month to operate them. They're all tied in together, and they're all pointing out there looking for stars or a galaxy, and they're all trying to find, answer the same question. Is there life in our universe? Is there intelligent life in our universe? Turn them back to the cities, and you will find out there is no intelligent life on planet Earth. Don't worry about outer space. The question is, is there any intelligent life left on earth? I don't think so. Give me the $50 million a month and I'll just tell you you're stupid. I mean, it's easy. He's down there and he says, they say, well, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the official spokesman for the Jackson family and I just want to tell you that, yeah, that he's under tremendous a lot of pressure right now, but his faith in God is sustaining him. And he appreciates all your prayers. Now, it was just two weeks ago that we found out. Now, I don't, whether he molested the kid or not is beside the point. I don't care. I don't know if he did. I don't care if he did. It doesn't make any difference. You know what? Somebody here is saying, well, what do you think about Michael Jackson? Is he going to get off this time? He may. He probably will. But you know what? A Bible believer knows a great fact. There is a higher court. And it's in Revelation chapter 20. And I'll be the jury on that one. So will you if you're saved. And this guy's up there, well, you know, Michael Jackson, he's, his, his faith in God is sustaining him. Oh, yeah, two weeks ago we found out that his bedroom was ringed with pornographic material, but his faith in God. You see, is, we don't see a contradiction in terms of that anymore. We think it's okay. Why? Because we're all one. We're all the children of God. There's no sin involved. But Jesse Jackson, there's no sin involved. It's social issues. He's a social pastor. He preaches a social gospel. And he's taken Christ out of it from the aspect that we're all the people. Everybody gets along. We're all fine. There ain't no problem with it. And, of course, that's exactly where we're at today. All right, look at chapter 4. He continues on with the superiority of the gospel. And in chapter 4, as he continues this theme, he lays out four great principles that you need to know about this whole book and as it fits into you. First of all, Christians, born-again men and women who are saved by the grace of God through faith, are not under the law anymore. And this was clearly laid out in the book of Romans. He says in this great chapter, you don't have to put yourself back under the law now that you're saved to justify yourself. And the reason why you don't is because the day you got saved, Christ justified you through grace, through faith, by His blood. And he says, now you are free from the law, but what this chapter begins to bring into focus, that you have to balance your liberty. And this goes back to Romans chapter 14, that no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. There's always somebody watching your life. And he says, you've got to balance that. You've got to balance that. And in chapter 4, verse 14, we find another great key. And this key found here in chapter 4, verse 14, is the great key that 
and my temptation which was in my flesh, he despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. Now, there's one of the cleanest verses in the Bible and a definitive verse that tells you that the angel of God in the Old Testament or the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. You're going to find that Christ shows up in a pre-incarnate form in the Old Testament and manifests Himself as the angel of the Lord. And Galatians chapter 4 verse 4, te 4 te tells you that that is Jesus Christ. No question about it. Then chapter 4 verse 16, great principle for anybody that's going to work with people. I love this verse. This verse is one of them verses that God teaches you a lot of times the hard way. He says in verse 16, Am I therefore become your enemy, because I tell you the truth? What a great verse. Boy, what a great verse. He says, Am I therefore become your enemy, because I tell you the truth? Verse 17 says, and basically he says, You know what? The people that are lying to you, they'll beat you, kill you. They'll get you to the judgment seat of Christ and strip you naked, and you lose everything you've got because they're lying to you. But I tell you the truth, you get mad at me and you embrace them. What is wrong with this picture? I got a message I haven't ever preached to you folks. I preached it a long time ago. I preached it to myself most of the time. I have to get it out sometimes regularly. The name of that message is The Day I Shot My White Horse. When I went into the ministry, I was under a delusion. That delusion was that everybody was going to really be excited about preaching the Word of God. The night I got saved, and I walked down there, you know, I mean, I thought I was in the presence of angels. If somebody would have told me that those men and women around me were arguing with each other and some of them were, were you know, not doing what's right with their families and some of them were not doing what's right this, some wasn't tithing and some of them, you know, was arguing and hated this person over here, I wouldn't have believed it. I thought when I got saved that everybody just loved God as much as I did. Boy, it didn't take long for that to wear off. Once I got into the ministry, I thought everybody wanted to do what's right. And I thought that just it was a glitch, you know, when somebody didn't want to do what's right. <coughs> I would, when I heard somebody in my ministry didn't want to do what's right or wasn't doing what's right, I just thought they wanted me to come over and say, hey, you know what, you're not doing what's right. So I'd saddle up my white horse. That was a beautiful horse. And I'd ride into the midst of that controversy, that horse prancing up, turning around in a circle, looking at him, and I'd say, hey, the Bible says, and you know what, boy, I got my tail feather shot off. I remember one time years and years and years ago, I got a phone call one night from a couple of high school kids, and they said, Johnny so-and-so is over here, and he's giving us all kinds of problems. And it started out, he's really whacked out, and he says he's going to do all kinds of things, and we need to have somebody over here. Well, I was the youth pastor. What did I do? It's a Saturday night. My wife and I, and Kelly was just probably that big. Jamie was just a forethought. She wasn't even anywhere around yet. She ain't anywhere around today either. She, but she went around there. Where's she at? Well, she's out there. What did I do? I walked over to my wife and said, honey. She looked up and she said, I'll get your saddle, honey. I went into the garage where I kept my white horse. Stroked him down along that big, beautiful mane and said, White horse, we got a job to do. Righteousness needs to be restored. He snorted out that nose. He pawed in the garage. And I let him out into the driveway and he's dancing around already. And I'm saying, Whoa, big fella, whoa, big fella. My wife brings out that gold and silver saddle. I threw that saddle up. In the middle of that saddle nose, that horse looked back at me and knew. Justice, integrity, 
the gospel was on the way. Oh, I shrinked that old horse boy, and he's looking at me, and he's prancing around. You know how horses do. He's going around in a circle. He's so excited. And I get one foot in the stirrup, and he's moving around. I'm on that horse, and he brares back. And I look at my little wife and little Kelly there, and Kelly's saying, Daddy, Daddy. And I said, Don't worry, darling. Daddy's off to solve the world's problems. I'll be back. And I slapped the tail of that horse, and down the driveway he went. Oh, as I rode down there, it was dark. And my wife told me later, Honey, I could see the sparks off those hooves on that pavement as you rode into history with the righteousness of God to solve man's problems. <laughs> I went into that situation, took that kid home, and the moment his mom and dad came to the door, I knew I was in trouble. They didn't like the way I handled it because they were very superficial, high-archy political people within the church who now everybody knew that their son was not a very good boy and it was going to reflect bad on them. And they made sure for the next three, four years I paid the tab for that. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I am the fastest one in a slow class. I remember the pastor called me in nicely, but one side chewed me up one side and down the other for embarrassing this good family in the church. Never mind the fact of what the kid was doing. I was wrong because I exposed sin. We're supposed to cover these things up so these people can maintain their respectability within the church. That's what I was told. Hey, no problem. I understand. I can play the game. Come on, big fella. You know, we spent many years together, <laughs> rode down many trails, solved many problems. But that's come to an end now. <laughs> I shot that sucker dead in the garage. Some years later, we sold that house. It's still up on Kentucky and 83rd Street. If you went into that garage right now, and that, under that cement floor, there's a dead white horse, I promise you. <laughs> you know why? You would think. That when you told God's people who were saved by the truth, who were supposed to love the truth, the truth about things in their life, that they would appreciate it. But they don't. I, have, I operate under a whole different rules now. The rules I operate under are very simple and very basic. You know what? You come to me and you say, hey, look, I got a problem. I don't understand how to deal with this and I'm struggling with this. I'll do everything in the world to help you. You come to me and you're playing the game and it's obvious you're playing the game. I won't say a word to you. You know why? Because I'm not going to ride my horse into your world because I know the truth about God's people. I preach it from the pulpit as hot as I can, as straight as I can. You come to me with any problem. I don't care what it is. It doesn't make any difference to me. We will work it through through the book. But you want to do the Baptist two-step, you do it by yourself. My horse was shot many, many years ago. I drive a Ford Ranger now. <laughs> and I'm telling you, that's a great verse. And that great verse says, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. And boy, you want to find enemies in the, in the Bible Christianity? Just start preaching the truth. Because we live in a world today in Bible Christianity where nobody wants the truth. I've had people come to me and said, Bob, you can tell me anything you want to tell me in my life anytime. And you know what? Some people are good. I'm not saying they all are. But let me tell you something. Most of them don't mean that. Most of them, that's theatrics for the moment. For the moment you do, 
you're in trouble. Well, then, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 22 through 30, boy, another great principle. And we talked about this Thursday night a couple of weeks ago, so I won't get into it again. We even dealt with it on New Year's Eve. And it's in Galatians chapter 4 where he, he makes the illustration about Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. And Hagar uh, puts forth Ishmael, who's an Arabian. And, of course, Sarah brings forth Isaac, who is the promised seed. And he likens those two between the old nature and the new, new, old nature and the new nature as an illustration of how you're dead to the law and how that Ishmael is a picture of the law, Isaac is a picture of the New Testament with promise, and at the end of the chapter he says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. The law is no good anymore. And in doing so, he gives you the Bible's perfect understanding of God's perspective on the Middle East. You go down there around verse 30, it simply says, What saith the Scriptures? And you can listen to CNN, ABC, CBS, and everybody you want to listen to. Get Time, Life, Look Magazine, everybody in the world about what's going on in the Middle East and who thinks what. And when it comes down to it, it's what saith the Scriptures. You know what the Scriptures say? Kick out the, Jew, kick out the Arab, put the Jew in. Kick out the Muslim, put the Jew in. And we covered that a couple of Thursday nights ago when we went through the aspect of it. Genesis, or chapter 6. Now in chapter 6, he begins to define our liberty in Christ, continue showing us. And in this one is a great concept here. We want to see this. It's the last chapter here when he says in 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, that's you and me, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And what we've got here is a picture of the fact that uh, the job of the church. And the job of the church, as I said last week, is restoration. My job is to restore God's people in any way, shape, or form. Don't care what you've done. Don't care where you've been. Don't care. That's immaterial. That's not part of the process. None of us look too hot the first time. And the moment you start categorizing sin in somebody's life and judging somebody by this and that, you better go take a good long look at your life. All have sin and come short of the glory of God. And he says, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual. That's Romans 15.1. Restore such a one into the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now let me just say very quick, quickly, an unsaved man needs to have his image restored. We know the doctrinal teaching is that in Adam, he was made in God's likeness and God's image. When Adam sinned, he lost that image. And the Bible says, as sin passed upon one man, all men have become sinners. The reason I, you and I are sinners is because Adam sinned. Adam lost the image of God, and that put man in a fallen state. When a man gets saved, that image gets restored. What Adam couldn't do is the first Adam, the second Adam is Christ fulfilled and, and did what Adam couldn't do. We all know that. So when I win somebody to Christ, when you win somebody to Christ, when I preach the Word of God and somebody gets saved, it's simply a matter of that person gets saved, that image gets restored. The job of the church is restoration. Now I take a saved man, saved woman, saved young man, young lady, doesn't make any difference. And they start to have problems in their life for whatever reason. The job of the church is to restore them to fellowship. That's the job. We only have two jobs here. One is to restore unsaved people's image back to the original image that Adam had by being made in the image of Christ through salvation, grace and faith. The other one is to take saved people who are already saved but are out of fellowship with God and to show them how to restore that fellowship with Christ on a daily basis. Not salvation, but their daily walk with Christ. Two aspects. When you got saved, then you enter into fellowship. You can lose your fellowship after you're saved, but you can't ever lose your salvation. 
The problem with God's people today that are saved or out of fellowship is the fact there's no fellowship with him. That can be restored. You don't have to get saved again. You just have to get back walking where he's at and get the principles of God into your life, which we're going to look at here in just a moment. That's the job of the church. Very simple, very basic. We restore people. We're in the restoration business. You take an unsaved man. There was a time in Adam that Adam was walked with God and had God's image. He lost it, and death was passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So when you get saved, that image gets restored. That's why it's called regeneration in the book of Titus. Because it had it and lost it, now we get it back in Christ. Somebody who gets saved is somebody who just gets out of fellowship, then we take the Word of God and we show them how to restore fellowship. And they go on from there. Then verse 7. <clears throat> this is the last thing I want to talk to you about. This is probably the greatest thing I could ever say to you today. And... Um, and verse 7 is one of the, uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 is one of the great laws in the Bible. There are seven laws in the Bible, seven absolute laws. Some of them had to do with your personal life that are absolute, just like gravity is. I mean, those seven laws in the Bible that have to do with your life is just like this. I'll hold the book up, it hits the ground. Why? There's an absolute law called gravity that cannot be interfered with and it will fall to the ground. Seven laws in the Bible. Those seven laws are absolute. Some of them do with the way the whole spectrum of the universe and earth operate. Some of them deal with gravity in particular. Some of them deal with your personal life. Some of them deal with things that you and I can do. But it's all based on seven absolute principles by which as the world turns, so to speak, it operates by these seven laws. They're undeniable, they're unchangeable, they're immutable, <clears throat> and these seven laws are the absolute laws by which everything that God created, including you and I, operate. One of those laws is the law of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, which simply says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's called the law of sowing and reaping. That law is a salient verse. That law is one of the most absolute verses that you will ever find anywhere, any place, any time in the history of the world. I wish that God's people, <coughs> I wish when you raised your kids, <coughs> you could get them to understand this law by the time they're 14 or 15. Problem is most parents don't get it till they're about 50 or 60 and then it's way too late. This verse says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You find it in relationship to the nation of Israel, in a great parallel. For in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, talking about the nation of Israel, it says, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It simply means this. There are certain principles and guidelines that life on planet Earth operate by. Those principles and guidelines are found in the Word of God. I'll give you some examples. <clears throat> Your children. There are certain principles taught in the Word of God about you training up your children from the time they're born to the time they get to, we talked about it, seven stages of spiritual growth. Here's something you'll always want to remember. Just a little thing that I keep in my mind, I say it to myself 40, 50 times a day when I see circumstances. If it starts wrong, it ends wrong. Unless God intervenes somewhere in the middle. If it starts wrong, it ends wrong. Sowing your wild oats as a young man and then praying for crop failure when you're 40 doesn't work. It starts wrong, 
it ends wrong. Simple as that. Simple as that. God gave you a book that told you exactly how to take a child, whether it's a little boy or a little girl, and train that child up to discipline them. Now, you know what? You either find out from the Bible, find out from me, find out from somebody, get in the Word of God, make it happen, or you go buy your Dr. Spock book, go buy this, go get your homespun method, go buy this book, get up your own concept in your mind, make up your own periodical delusion in your mind of why you can't do what the Bible says. And then when they're 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, you sit down and scratch your head and say, oh my goodness, why? The reason is, be not deceived. God is not mocked. You violate the principles, you'll pay the principles later. It's as simple as that. It's marriage is the same way. God gave you absolute principles to which a marriage is going to run. Now, you don't take the time before you get married to look at those. Don't scratch your head and wonder why your marriage fell apart four or five years later. Now, I'm not saying there isn't something you can do. The question always is, when will you? Not can I, not is there. The question is, when will you stop deceiving yourself? When will you step down out of your pride blimp that you're flying over the world in and simply say, you know what? I need to start operating by biblical principles. When will you do that? That's the only issue. That is the only question. And but the older you get, <coughs> the more violated principles that come into play. <coughs> I mean, any guy, next week we're going down to the City Union Mission. You're going to meet guys down there that are whacked out on drugs and alcohol who will never turn their life around. They will never change it. And they get into their program, they do their best they can, maybe they get one or two that make it, but for every one and two that make it, there are 500 who never make it and never will make it. You know why? Because they have deceived themselves. You know what the deception is? The deception's found by the wisest man that ever lived in the book of Proverbs. He started out by an Ecclesiastes 4.12 by making a little statement, a three-fold cord is, is quickly broken. Oh yeah, take a little piece of thread. Just a little piece of thread. Just something that your mom and dad or you sew with, puts in your little needle and does your little thimble work and puts in your little sewing machine and just a piece of thread. Wrap it around those two fingers and big strong man that you are, you can pop those things just like that. Wrap it around two times, pop it. Wrap it around 500 times and you will never get out of it. You know why? Because that little thread is likened to sin. You may do it once, twice, you may smoke it once, you may drink it once, you may drink it, but you come to the place after 10, 15, 20 years, and you think you're going to wake up someday, and now you've seen the light, and you're going to stretch and flex those big muscles of yours and say, I'm going to live for God, and I'll tell you what, that old thread that's been wrapped around you, flesh, for the last 20, 15, 30 years is going to say, no, you're not. Great study in the Bible. In the New Testament, three people got saved. First person got saved, the little girl, she was dead. And when she was dead, Jesus brought her back to life. It's a picture of getting saved. You were dead in trespasses of sin, and you got come alive in Christ Jesus. So all the dead people in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even though they're literally dead and they come back to life and they picture Israel, they're a picture of you and me before we got saved. We were dead in trespasses of sin. We met Christ. The little girl met Christ. She comes back to life. The Bible says immediately she gets up and she goes. Next case is a guy about 19, 20, 25, maybe 30 years old. <coughs> He's dead. Picture of an unsaved person. Christ brings him back to life. 
They have to help him up. They have to help him walk. You get the third person. John chapter 11. It's Lazarus. Lazarus is 80, 90 years old. When he comes back to life, picture a man getting saved older in life. He has to have a lot of people unwrap the grave clothes that are around him before he can ever get out. You know why? It's a picture that the longer you go, the more you wrap yourself up in your sin, the more you deceive yourself, and the harder it is to break free and do what God wants you to do. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of parents today that scratch their head and say, what happened? You deceived yourself. God gave you principles about raising children. You either do them or you don't. It isn't like, well, I'm going to do some or I'm not. You either do or you don't. You either find out how or do you operate in your own spiritual world with your own little ideas. And the Bible says by doing that and violating the principles, that's where you mock God. God gave us the principles to live by, to operate by, and when you think you know more about it than God does, that is mocking to him. And he says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that will he also reap. Mocking God in your life is simply you, by your own principles of life, following those instead of following the principles of God, or never taking the time to find out how. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 22 says, His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sin. Alice, I'm glad you're here today. I told you earlier. Barbie, I'm glad you're here today because you have to be. Troy, you can bear witness to this. Most of you can. Remember the old Bible conference days up at old McDonald's farm? And we would go through there in about Thursday or Friday night. Yeah, I think it was Friday night. The cooks, and Alice was one of my cooks. Grandma was a cook. Penny helped out. Barbie was a cook. They were good all week long. Got up early in the morning, worked hard, sweated all day in that hot kitchen, cooked food, breakfast, three meals a day for 200-some people. Worked just unbearingly in there. So on Friday night, got to cut them some slack. Friday night at the old Bible conference days was food fight night. Now, I'm talking food fight with a big F. Um, now, this place we were at were probably as wide as this whole thing to the parking lot and all the way down to the end. It was a huge place. The kitchen was in the back. And I, after the evening service, I'd be out walking around, checking things out, and I'd hear these high-pitched screams and giggles coming from, I knew it was on. Those three women, and anybody else that was brave enough to get into it, had an hour and a half food fight. Have you ever seen your wife at 12.30 in the morning with pancake grease, eggs, bacon? I can't explain what it was. It's the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. And not only that, the food was everywhere. It was absolutely in the sound system. It was on the stage. It, we had tables with chairs. There wasn't a chair or a table for 300 people. That wasn't covered. There was food everywhere. And I know they had to blow off steam. And I know that that was their deal. And that was fine. I didn't care. In fact, the first time they did it years ago, I participated in it because I thought, this sounds like fun. I'll get in it. The cooks have had a hard week. They're going to have a good time. 
I'll play along with that. We'll have fun. You know why I never got in again? The food fight went that I was in went for an hour and a half. And I mean, it was food. I mean food. I mean, they saved up food throughout the week. <laughs> they had it in their face, in their hair, in their clothes, everywhere. I mean, they were covered. They looked, I mean, it looked like Night of the Living Dead, part three, four, and five. I mean, it was incredible. Food was everywhere. And I got along with it. And then, after it was all over, we were all talking about how fun it was, and it was great, and we were laughing and giggling, and everybody was just funny, and everybody looked, laughing, everybody, how funny everybody looked, and, you know, and the whole camp's gone to bed now, you know, and we're laughing, and, blah, blah, blah. and then the thing hit me. What took an hour and a half food fight was having fun. It took four hours to clean up afterwards. That was my first and last food fight. Because you know what? The fun of the food fight wasn't as fun as the cleanup afterwards. We all have our food fights in love, life. And the food fights in life are the messes we make. And we all make them. The bottom line is this. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. You're part of the food fight. You're part of the cleanup. And it usually takes a lot longer to clean up the food than it did to throw it on the floor and get it in your face and get it in your hair. Because the principle is, it's easy to get into that stuff, but when you take that cord and wrap it around you time and time again, it's tough to get out. And I don't know why this is. I've seen this in young people. I've seen it in middle-aged people, and I've seen it in older people. And I don't know why this is. I mean, I do know why it is, but I don't know why it is. It, it, it's, an, it's an enigma to me. But I see this thing that people think that that verse means for everybody else and not them. People come to the conclusion, and I see this in young people, that they think no matter how bad it gets, instead of getting right with God and doing what's right, you can beat the odds. I, I talked to a state trooper down, one time down in southern Kansas when I was working down there because every year they get young people killed in, around break, spring break time or in June, you know, when school's getting out. And I talked to him one time, and, and it was every year there'd be two or three kids killed. And he told me, he said, you know what? He says, kids just think that they're invincible. They think that it cannot happen to them. And that's the mindset that we get, that the principles are for everybody else except me. I am the exception to the rule. I will beat the system. No, you won't. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that will he also reap. Is there ever anything you can do? I don't know of any situation you find yourself in. Whether you're 15, 20, 30, 50, 60, 70, or 100. I don't know any situation you find yourself in that there isn't an answer and a process to get out. But the answer is simply this. How long it takes you to go out?